0: for the supply chain issues we had. Every rope we had ordered this year was scheduled to be here in August. The Alta rope was on the same boat as the Jackson Hole rope. They're being delivered today and you know, I got a whole comedy of errors of you know what caused these delays but you know at the end of the day I own those delays and we have to adjust to those delays and we're putting a lot of procedures in place that will help alleviate at least where we stand today I don't know what the next round of these major issues are but uh, we're doing our best to adjust to the marketplace as it is
1: today welcome to the storm I'm your host Stuart Winchester going deep into the world of lifts today. A quick reminder to please pop over to StormSkiing.com and subscribe to the storm Skiing newsletter. If you're new here, if you stumbled across this podcast on iTunes or Spotify or Google, welcome. I am so pumped to have you. But the podcast is just a small part of the storm. The newsletter delivers at least 100 articles exploring the world of lift-served skiing every single year and that comes to your inbox all year long. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. There is still real ski journalism happening and it is happening at stormskiing.com and you can get that content delivered directly to your inbox by signing up for the Storm Skiing newsletter. You can also follow the Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. I am so pumped today because I am bringing you a new partner. This episode of the Storm Skiing Podcast is sponsored by CORE, Oregon State University's Center for the Outdoor Recreation Economy, the industry's premier workforce development partner. Is your ski resort ready for a second winter of revenge tourism and record guests? Are you looking to upgrade ski lift mechanic skills at your resort, but challenged by the cost and time to train your team? Oregon State's core online ski lift maintenance training gives new and experienced lift mechanics the skills to become the technicians your resort needs. This self-paced, interactive, hybrid online training covers lift systems and operations, safety standards, preventative maintenance, and full NSAA level one requirements. It is the most affordable lift maintenance training in the industry and includes industry expert sessions, on-site assessments, and all course materials. Sign up your lift maintenance team at beav.es backslash storm so they know we sent you. That's beav.es backslash storm. And of course, I have more to say about Mountain Gazette. I've been hammering you with this for more than two years now, but... No matter what I say, it is not going to whack you on the head as hard as Mountain Gazette when this work of art drops on your doorstep. Issue 198 worked its way to me recently and wow. First, the cover, Seth Morrison crushing pow as captured by photographer Scott Markowitz. That shot tags an enormous spread on one of the greatest skiers of all time. And then, did you know that there are 22 ski areas in Greece, in Greece. There are some amazing pics to prove it too. Then, writer and snowboarder Dave Zook gives us a deep meditation on what it means to compete in and to retire from the competitive free ride circuit. And the photo profile of Trevor Kinnison, who's living an inspirational life in a sit ski after a spinal cord injury is unforgettable. This thing takes some left turns too. We explore nudist lifestyle, Saudi Arabia, and the tragic end to the life of cyclist Mariah Wilson. But I can only say so much. My man, Mike Rogie, who had the vision to bring Mountain Gazette back from the dead two years ago, laid this out pretty bluntly in the latest issue, when he said, quote, A firm belief developed for me recently. Folks need to see Mountain Gazette in real life. Then, and only then, do they get it. End quote. Look, that's real. This thing is incredible. It is the best outdoor print mag going, and you can get in on it by subscribing at MountainGazette.com. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 107, Lightner Poma of America, President Darren Cole. If you've ordered so much as a roll of paper towels on the internet over the past two years, you know the supply chain is all jacked up. And if you tried to do just about anything from order fast food to get some work done in your house, you know the labor market isn't operating any more efficiently. All of that creates a big problem for one of the essential pieces of the lift served ski experience, the lifts. After a COVID summer dip in lift construction, new lifts have been rising at a record pace across North America for the past two years. This demand has run into a head on collision with the realities of these jacked up materials and labor markets. The result? More delays than anxious, scary operators who are already nervous about weather and staffing at this time of year have the patience to deal with. So, how do you fix it? How many of these problems are symptoms of a COVID hangover, and how many are permanent? How do you adjust right now to get these lifts spinning before Christmas? And how do you adjust right now to make sure that things go smoother next year? My guest today doesn't have all of the answers, but he has some pretty good ideas for how to present these problems from becoming permanent issues in the lift installation process. Oh, and one note, because of my own supply chain issues, namely overbooking my calendar, this podcast is getting to you a little late. So the Jackson Hole Thunder Lift Hall Rope which we refer to as delayed in this conversation, has since been delivered to the mountain and is in process of being installed. Let's go. My guest today has been president of Leitner Poma of America since 2019. Leitner Poma of America engineers, installs, and services all types of ropeway systems for the ski industry, amusement parks, and urban transport. The company is a North American subsidiary of France-based Poma SA and a sister company of Italy-based Leitner AG. Leitner Poma of America also owns SkyTrack, a leading manufacturer of fixed-grip chairlifts. Prior to joining Leitner Poma in 2014, he was general manager of Powderhorn Mountain in Colorado. He also spent time at Crested Butte, Vail Resorts, and Purgatory. Darren Cole is my guest. Darren, welcome to the Storm. So glad to have you. How are you doing today?
0: Stuart, thank you. Uh, Good day today. Appreciate uh, being on the podcast and uh, truly appreciate everything you do for the industry. I appreciate your passion and,
1: and what you bring to the industry. So glad to be here. Well, thanks so much for saying that, Darren. I, I want to ask a little off-the-wall question first for you, because I know you're based in the West, out in Colorado. It's looking like a really snowy start to the 2022-23 to 23 ski season. I know you're not necessarily based right in the mountains, but have you gotten a taste of snow yet? We have. You know, here in
0: uh, Junction, we're in Grand Junction, Colorado, the western slope uh, we like to consider ourselves a, a eastern suburb of Utah, but uh, yeah, we've had a little bit of snow down here. It's I think like you're seeing across the West right now. We were, uh, you know, 70 degrees two days ago, and uh, you know had some snow last night, and uh, it's definitely that fickle weather. So you know, I, I spend as you see in my bio, I spend a lot of time on the resort side, and uh, this is the time of year you're always doing your snow dance. But uh, as a company installing and doing construction in the mountains, you always appreciate uh, that Indian summer as long as you can get it. But uh, I'd say across the board, you know, the West, we're up to our eyeballs in snow. Uh, East Coast, you know, it's still shorts and flip-flops. So we're uh, doing our snow dance. So Killington can get up and running for the World Cup here in a couple of weeks. But uh, it is a manic time of the year, but we're definitely getting uh, excited and getting the goosebumps for the season ahead of us. A
1: couple exciting streams for you because you're waiting for ski season and you have so many exciting lift projects going in and we're going to get into those in a minute here darren but i really do want to ask you about your career because you have this fascinating background and you've worked so deeply in the resort industry that i explore so much on this podcast so let's just go back to the beginning here what was your first job in skiing
0: first job in skiing was at uh, purgatory uh what is now purgatory durango mountain resort down in durango mm-hmm. Uh, first job out of college, I uh, just kind of stumbled across the, the job, uh, was a sales manager. So I, uh, showed up, uh, coming out of Colorado state, uh, move right down to Durango. And the next day I was put on a little, uh, prop plane to Lubbock, Texas. And you would never think that, uh, you know, in your career that you're spending your time in places like, uh, Lubbock, Texas or Florida or the South. But, uh, I was a sales manager for purgatory for quite some time and, uh, really, uh, got my first taste of the industry down there, and it's still a resort that uh, is
1: near and dear to my heart. When you showed up at Purgatory for that job, were you a skier already? Did you grow up skiing?
0: I did, you know, skiing was kind of in my life uh, early. Uh, I ran track and uh, cross country all through high school and uh, college, so didn't ski as much during those time periods and then uh, jumped right back into it uh,
1: when I got down to Purgatory. Where did you grow up and where did you grow up skiing?
0: Uh, predominantly uh the front range of colorado denver parker that area uh you know the the cool thing growing up there is you had at the, the time the eskimo program at uh, winter park so you could uh, jump on the train go up uh, have your day skiing and then uh, also we spent some time down in albuquerque new mexico and you know you don't think of new mexico or especially albuquerque but uh they had a school program that uh you know every thursday you would uh get to the tram go up to sandia peak and I uh, get skiing in that way, so it was uh, time I grew up was uh, you know very conducive to learning to ski, and it became a big part of your life with ski clubs and that sort of thing.
1: So good start, and and you ended up staying in the industry for a long time. So you're working at Purgatory, and I, I mentioned this really impressive list of resorts that you spent time at. Take us through your career from that first sales job at Purgatory up until the time when you moved into the lift side of the business.
0: Sure. Yeah, I yeah. spent a few years at uh, Purgatory going in as a sales manager, finished up my career there uh, as director of sales. Um, and then uh, from there, I ended up at Vail Associates, uh, went over and uh, worked in their sales department uh, when it was still Vale Associates. Uh, you know, we had Vail and Beaver Creek and Arrowhead at the time, uh, you know, huge competitors with Breck and Keystone and Copper and uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to live through, you know, a lot of iterations of where we are in the industry today uh, through that job with, you know, Vail Associates and Vail Resorts. Uh, you know, you go back to the day and that's when we had the Buddy Passes and that eventually sprouted into what is now, you know, the Epic Pass and the Icon Pass and how important those have been. Um, got to go through the first iteration and transition of uh, some of the, the mega resort corporations is... At Vail Associates, became Vail Resorts, uh, started purchasing, you know, Breck and Keystone um, and lived through that as we, uh, you know, built that company up quite a while. So it was very fun. Uh, worked my way up through a variety of different uh, positions. Was at, uh, in the Vail Valley for about 15 years. And uh, really, it was it was a great time uh, to be at Vail uh, Resorts. I, I truly appreciate my time there. Still have a lot of good friends from that time period. Uh, and after Vail Resorts, I took some time, started my own company, uh, Synergy Sales Solutions, and uh, it was good. I got to take a lot of the knowledge and information that I learned on the resort side and kind of reach out to a broader audience um, of supporting mountain-based and uh, destination-based uh, resort companies all across the West and throughout the U.S. Um, and through that, uh, brought on Crest Butte Mountain Resort as a client, and I eventually stepped in. There is their VP of marketing and chief marketing officer and uh, truly thought I would spend the bulk of the rest of my career down in Crested Butte. It's just such a great resort and worked through when the Maulers bought it. Uh, I left there just before they uh, sold to Vail Resorts. And uh, I had been uh, had the opportunity, Andy Daly had reached out to me when he and the guards bought uh, Powderhorn. Um, I had worked with Andy and the guards during my time at Vail. And, uh, you know, it was a a great opportunity to get in on the ground floor of, you know, a great regional resort and uh, really embrace the vision they had for the resort. So, stepped in and helped them out uh, for a few years on that when my contract ran out there. Uh, Took a little bit of time, did a quick project over in uh, Moab, Utah uh, for about a year. And uh, really through that, I just kind of the the job at Lightner Palma came up, Uh, Rick Spear, the past president and uh, my predecessor knew that, uh, he was going to be retiring. And, um, so we had some conversations, uh, came up with a, a, couple of year program to step in and see if Lightner Palma was a fit for me and I was a fit for them and, um, came to be, and this is where I've been. And this is where I hope to be for the rest of my career. It's a, it's a really interesting transition going for so many years on the resort side from, you know, more of the sales and marketing aspect into the operations aspect uh, and getting to come over here. So it's, uh, you know, this time of the year, you always remiss being at the, the resort, but the great thing about the job that I have now is I get to work with pretty much every resort in North America. So it's been a great transition. Uh, been very fortunate in my career, had a lot of mentors and good people I've met along the way, and hopefully I can give back in my own little way to the industry.
1: So you show up in 2014 and the president job didn't come up for a few years. What did, Leitner Poma looked like when you showed up and how has it evolved? And I realize it was only eight years ago, but this is an industry and, and particularly your side of the industry is evolving so quickly. So just talk us through this. How much has Leitner Poma changed in the eight years since you joined the company?
0: No, I think it's a great question. And, and I think it's really a <clears throat> reflection of kind of the state of the industry um, as kind of well as the, the market environment we live in. So You know, the first year I started here, uh, I probably got here sometime in October, November. And, you know, at that time, I think that next year that I, going into that next spring, our first contract for the preceding year came probably in late April, early May. And I think that year we only did four or five projects, uh, which is average. And I think uh, pre, probably two years ago, I think uh you know each of us in the industry were truly just in a duopoly in our industry you know we would each do you know 6 to 8 6 to 10 lifts a year so um and it was interesting you know you could sign a contract you know all the way up until August and you know probably get a delivery uh you know pre Thanksgiving and definitely pre Christmas you know so through that time uh we saw ups and downs in <clears throat> the industry but then I think you know, we were going in pre-COVID. We were going into a pretty busy year. I think we probably had somewhere between, you know, just LPOA. We had 10 or 15 lifts on the books. Uh, You know, COVID hits and we were very fortunate and we didn't see any uh, projects actually canceled, uh, but we did see a number of uh, projects delayed. So, you know, COVID hit really kind of, uh, I think, turned the whole world upside down. Uh, We were very fortunate. We, maintain the factory because we do have some government contracts. So from a maintenance and a manufacturing perspective, we stayed open, but we did effectively shut down for, you know, probably 60 days. Uh, we were fortunate enough. We could keep all of our employees on. Uh, we never laid anybody off and, uh, we came back from that and really post COVID it's just been nonstop. So, you know, I think, uh, the industry really took a step. They had been so busy throughout COVID, uh, that, uh, the need for investment really came along and uh, we have kind of been nonstop since then. So I, I think the, the volume has changed dramatically since I got here as well as just, you know, operationally how we have to function. Um, I think the biggest thing that I've seen is historically we would just be all out for four to six months and then a little bit softer. Um, you know, now we're able to operate 12 months a year, at a much more consistent level.
1: Certainly an interesting time to work in that business and for that company. And interesting that if you go back to the intro here, you became president in 2019, which of course was right before everything went sideways. So how did the opportunity come up to be to become president? What appealed about it to you and how has that gone so far?
0: Um you know I, I think as I mentioned Rick Spear knew he was going to be retiring. He'd been looking for uh, you know, his successor for quite some time, uh, we knew each other from the industry um, and it disconnected. And so, um, as I say, I, I came in here under a, kind of a two-year uh, test for both of us to see if I'm a fit, if um, they were a fit for me. I was able to look at business development and, you know, how the world was changing. So, um, and really, you know, once I got in, understood the company, understood the people, uh, the ownership group. Uh, it is just a fantastic company to work for, and I, there's there's no place I'd rather be in my career right now. Uh, even though we're a subsidiary of a uh, global company, uh, we're given the freedom to operate, you know, very independently. Um, you know, we take very good pride in made in America, and I think that's one of the differentiating factors we have in our marketplace over our competitor is we manufacture pretty much everything right here in Grand Junction, Colorado. So. To be able to be a you know a U.S. based a U.S. made uh, company and as I say giving back to the industry uh, that's truly what appeals to me because every every lift we build I look at it as you know a true partnership uh, it's just not this is our customer and we deliver exits you know it's a true partnership and that comes through in a year like this when you know uh, there are just so many challenges that we're faced with you know globally um supply chain issues to price issues to labor um, it really takes that partnership and uh you know that's really one of the things that appealed to me is just the family aspect we have here as a company uh the ability to have everything made right here in Colorado and predominantly in the U.S. Um, and then just a great partnership with our uh, our parent company
1: that's really interesting about the manufacturing capacity. I want to come back to that in a minute. First, you said something interesting about understanding the company. And uh, personally, I get lost really fast in the, in the subsidiaries, in the, in the uh, you know, essays, in and the, and the this and that. So help, help us understand this. Let's just zoom out a little bit here. Lightner and Poma were separate companies for a long, long time. And there's Poma lifts going back uh, decades and decades all over the country. The two merged in 2000. What can you tell us, Darren, about those two companies and their legacies pre-merger and ultimately what brought them together 22 years ago?
0: Sure. No, I think that's a great question. I think, you know, if pretty much anybody thinks of a chairlift, uh, you know, here in the U.S., you think of a Palma lift. It's kind of like, you know, Xerox, Kodak, Kleenex. And, uh, you know, Palma came to the U.S. back in the 1950s and, you uh, you know, really the platter lifts and a lot of those early lifts, you know, really became synonymous and, and that, you know, I think was the foundation, you know, here in the U.S. And, uh, you know, they came to Grand Junction um, back in the 80s. And it's interesting. It's a question we get, you know, quite a bit is, you know, how, how did you ever select, you know, Grand Junction of all places as, you know, the, the spot and at the time, and, you know, I kind of go back and I think about it and it makes sense you know, Grand Junction was really the hub for ski country. You know, it was before the time of regional flights into, uh, you know, the Vale Airport, into Crested Butte, into Telluride, into Montrose. Grand Junction was really the hub. You know, you would fly in, there'd be charter flights coming up. There would be buses, you know, nonstop going to Vale and Aspen and Crested Butte and Telluride. And so it really made sense from that perspective to select Grand Junction, you know, the the favorable weather we talked about earlier in the discussion you know, allowed us to do manufacturing, you know, outside, almost on a year-round basis. Uh, so it really became that central hub. And uh, I, I think if you go through the progression of Palma uh, into Leitner Palma of America, uh, you know, Leitner did acquire uh, Palma and globally merged under the, the auspices of HTI or high technology industry. So um, in Europe, Palma and Leitner still operate very independently and very regionally uh, across Europe and the globe. Uh, here in the US, we have uh, set ourselves up as a solely uh, independent operating subsidiary under Lightner Palm of America. Uh, and from that perspective, it's worked very good. I mean, we take the best technology out of our uh, parent companies, and uh, you know, we've created a product specifically for the US market. So um, you know, we, we look at the most cost-effective uh, and innovative way to manufacture our technology uh, for the U.S. market and for our codes and everything along those lines. So, so I think it's been a great progression uh, you know, within that aspect of the company and uh, who we are in the industry today.
1: When you look at that relationship, it sounds like you have a lot of independence, but you're able to share technologies. For example, you look at the Palisades Tahoe Base-to-Base Gondola uses the direct, di- direct drive technology, which is really simplifying the machines that make these lifts go. Is that an example of something where maybe this technology is conceived of and perfected in Europe and then you're able to incorporate it into your North American operations? Is that the sort of relationship that primarily defines the European and the U.S. pieces of this company?
0: Absolutely. I mean, you look at the direct drive, the direct drive being used in Europe um, you know, for quite some time. There's over 200 installations. So it definitely gives us the ability to take proven technology that's coming out of a, you know, a global company. So um, I think that's a perfect example um, of where that plays out. Uh, you know we also have efficiencies, you know our chairs, our uh, cabins. Uh, some of that equipment still comes out of Europe. Uh, we take advantage of uh, the synergies uh, that we can have from that global company. Um, so yeah, I think that's a perfect example of where you know what we predominantly do here is uh, heavy manufacturing. Uh, So we can build that here in Grand Junction, take uh, advantage of that uh, coming out of the technology that's been refined and developed uh, in Europe. So definitely helps us from that perspective. Um, You know, we're always creating new technologies. Uh, We're just in the process of launching a new technology coming out called Connex, and that's a a combination aerial gondola that drops down into autonomous vehicles. So maybe not as relevant in the ski industry, but uh, you know, our next iteration here in the u.s is going to be urban transportation so you see uh you know little cottonwood canyon from sandy up to snowbird and alta there's big projects in la um santa monica so really it's being able to take that proven technology uh refine it for our market and uh move from there but i I think that the direct drive is a great example of that synergy that we have with our parent company
1: quick aside because this is such a an area of interest for me and And I don't want to get too deep into this because of the ski nature of the podcast. But, you know, I live in New York City, so mass transit is very built into the culture here. In most of America, in most of the United States, that is not the case. And I'm always amazed traveling around the world to see the extent to which trains and trams and buses and gondolas and, and ropeways and all these different modes of transit are built into the fabric of life and of culture. What is the potential with the United States, which is a, a, a vast and wealthy country where this would make a lot of sense in a lot of cases to have something like a, an urban gondola, like, like we're seeing built in Mexico and throughout Central America and in South America. And we just don't have anything like it. And they're much cheaper in most cases to build than certainly than a subway, but also than, than light rail. What's the potential here? And and, and what, what do we need to make this happen? Because it, it seems like a lot of this gets held up by NIMBYs and politics and other things, but it makes so much sense to me. I can't figure out why there, why we don't see more systems like this in the United States. No, I think it's a great question. And, you know,
0: probably a question that I've lived with since I got here. It's I think there's a few things. I, I think the, the focus on, you know, climate change and sustainability that we're starting to see here in the U.S. You know, you look at the uh, Inflation Reduction Act that was just passed, and the uh, benefits in there for electric vehicles. I mean, the the one thing not most people realize is that a chairlift or a gondola is effectively an electric vehicle. You know, it's it's one electric vehicle with, you know, you know, 100, 200 um, vehicles on it. So it, we're we're trying to look at that very sustainable aspect. I think it's the shift. You know, we've looked at projects in, say, Boston and, you know, great projects make perfect sense. uh, But then you look at, you know, you're replacing buses and those sort of things. So I I think it's the shift. I think we see one of these systems come up. And as I just mentioned, there's L.A., there's Santa Monica, there's Little Cottonwood Canyon. I think we get one of these off the ground and and you'll see uh, the benefits that are out there. and even you look at ski towns, you know, Breckenridge has been looking at them, uh, Steamboat, Winter Park, Park City. Uh, so I think everybody's starting to, to grasp the aspect of it. And, uh, you know, really just starting to look at other means of transportation because it is so much more cost affordable uh, than, you know, a bridge or additional buses. Or you look at Little Cottonwood Canyon and they're looking at, you know, additional buses, passing lanes, uh, avalanche chutes. So it's, it's really, I think, just educating The leaders, you know, our our public leaders, as well as the community. And uh, as I say, I think we get one of these off the ground. And that's, we're putting a lot of time and effort uh, into that, bringing that technology to the US. You bring up uh, Mexico City, we have some great systems. Uh, Medellin uh, down in Colombia has got a number of systems. Uh, We just opened up a a beautiful uh, 3S system in uh, Toulouse, France. and you're, you're starting to see more and more around the world, but in terms of getting them to the U.S., um, it's, it's a huge push and it's really kind of what we look at as kind of the next frontier for expanding our technology base here in the U.S.
1: I'm really looking forward to seeing how that evolves. Take us a little bit more into this facility in Grand Junction, Darren. You, it, it sounds like a lot of the, as you said, heavy manufacturing is done there. What do you do in Grand Junction and what don't you do? we pretty much build the entire lift system here so
0: pretty much any of the steel components uh anything that requires you know the welding the heavy manufacturing is done here um you know what we do not do here direct drives are still coming out of europe um you know our chairs our cabins uh our grips um ropes uh some of those third-party suppliers but uh for the most part we build everything you know right here and we have a very dedicated group of Uh, Craftsman is our employee base, and we have a lot of employees that have been here for over 30 years and take tremendous pride in what they do. So, um, you know, we have, uh, you know, about 100,000 square feet under roof here. Um, You know, we're busting at the seams. Uh, We've just invested in another five acres here in Grand Junction. And then we're currently looking in three different locations to expand our capabilities uh, here in the U.S. And uh, you know I'm hoping we'll announce uh, another location of about equal uh, size to this facility to just continue to expand our capabilities here in North America.
1: Can you tell us what those finalist
0: cities are? Uh, we're looking at three different locations. we're uh, looking expanding here in Colorado, uh, Minnesota and Utah. So those are kind of the the three finalists we've come down to each have been very, very aggressive and uh, you know we're hoping to have a decision right around the first of the year and uh, get moving on that just as quickly as we can. All
1: right. Well, I, I want to explore that supply chain that you touched on uh, more in just a minute here. First, I, I do want to talk about Skytrack. I think this is such an interesting acquisition. You brought, Leonard Palma brought, bought Skytrack, which is based in Salt Lake City, in 2016. And I, I realize you were not running the company at the time, but what can you tell us about why Leonard Palma of America purchased Skytrack?
0: No, and it's a good question. It, it really kind of defines our positioning in the market here. You know, I think when you uh, know, was Jan Leonard and Dave Mativier and Carl Skyling had uh, you know broken off and started Skytrack. Uh, you know, they brought that true passion, uh, you know, to the industry for wanting to deliver a you know a reliable, cost-effective product uh, to the marketplace. And uh, you know, I think they did a fantastic job. They built a great company. And then, you know, unfortunately when Jan passed away, it was really, you know, kind of a time of reckoning for the company. And, you know, we were, you know, a strong competitor of theirs as was uh, Doppelmeyer. And, um, you know, I think at the time uh, our objective is they are a very important part of the market. You know, you look at the the fixed grip market in the U S and so we felt that, you know, for, the our company strategy and for the industry it was a really good thing to keep Skytrack uh, around and supplying that cost-effective product to the industry so uh, it was important to us uh, you know in terms of giving back to the industry to make sure that we kept that cost-effective solution uh, for the industry around uh, and so it's been a great acquisition for us. Uh, you know we have our alpha lift which is definitely a little bit more robust uh, than uh, the Skytrack product so uh, within our, uh, portfolio of lifts uh, the Skytrack product is is very important uh, you know uh, Dave Mativier has retired uh, Carl has taken uh, the helm and um, you know has done a great job in terms of uh, you know leading the company and growing with us and part of our expansion in North America will be a new facility on expanded capabilities for Skytrack I mean they've done an amazing job I think they're in a old Kubota tractor factory and and (laughs) making out some just amazing product out of that. So it's, it's time for, for their expansion as well.
1: So I want to set this up for the listeners because a lot of skiers, the reality is they ski the Epic pass, they ski the icon pass, they pay attention to the big six packs, the eight packs, the gondolas. But the truth is there's still a very big market for fixed grip, simple chairlifts. And that's what SkyTrack makes. And that's all they make. So, in this era of bigger, faster, better, where we have two apex coming online this year, and you're building this awesome base-to-base gondola at at Palisades Tahoe, and I love these big lifts, but these fixed grip lifts are still so important. Just talk about that. Why is there still such a robust market for these fixed grip lifts in 2022?
0: I, you know, I think it comes down to a few things. I, I think you know it comes down to you know what I would call as the you know, the soul of the resorts, you know, the capacity the resorts are trying to deal with. Um, You know, I I think if you look out there, there are resorts out there that, you know, they want to manage uphill flow and on traffic flow, and a fixed grip is a great way to do that. So, um, you know, we see it across the board, Uh, you know, even within, uh, you know, the Ville Resorts or the Alteras or the Powders or the Mountain Capital Partners, it's always that mix of, you know, what makes the most sense. And I I think if you look at the surge we're having in just replacement lifts this year, um, and you look at replacement versus new lifts, I would say, uh, you know, we just did the uh, SAM survey when Peter Landerman uh, was helping them put that together. You know, the majority of lifts that were replaced this past year, uh, you know, are truly um, replacement lifts. I think this last year we had one, two, three, four you know, five, 20% of the lifts we did last year were new lifts, uh, where the rest were replacement lifts. And, uh, you know, fixed grip lifts play an important part of that uh, within resorts. And, you know, a lot of resorts, they they don't have the need um, for, you know, a high speed quad.
1: Yeah, you know, you, you're right. And it wasn't really fair of me to call out Vail Resorts there because seven of the 10 SkyTrack lifts uh, going in this year are at Vail Resorts. Jack Frost, Big Boulder, Boston Mills and Brandywine, smaller mountains, but nonetheless... of the Vale portfolio you know darren as i mentioned earlier i live in new york more ski resorts or ski areas rather than any other state 50 depending on how you count and how they're doing that year only seven of those ski areas out of those 50 have high speed lifts the rest of them have 40 50 60 year old halls and riblets and borvigs and the truth is the united states is filled with these old lifts that you know every, every general manager I have on the podcast tells me we have the best lift maintenance crew in the business. And I'm sure that's true. And these guys are pros and they know what they're doing. However, machines only last so long. As you survey the United States, and and the reality is that there are probably more of these old lifts than the new lifts. What is your addressable market? What what is the opportunity here? And how do you tap that and and really aggressively begin to upgrade these fixed grip lifts across the country? Because again, seven of the 10 skytrack upgrades this year are from Vale Resorts who has the money to buy these and and the other three are Powder Ridge, a little place in Minnesota, Bryce in Virginia, and uh, Montana Snowball. So so you don't see a lot of these little mom and pop places that can afford even a Skytrack lift which is going to be a couple million dollars probably. So so how how do you go about reaching this potential market?
0: Well I, I think you know the the interesting thing we've seen in the last couple of years it's it's kind of self-regulation on on the resort aspect because you know, it's just like having, you know, a vintage or a classic car. Yes, you can keep that up and running, but the cost of those parts and the availability of those parts, you know, becomes more and more challenging as you move forward. And then the flip side of that, that I I think is about to, you know, really hit the industry is the availability of that lift maintenance staff that really has the the history and the knowledge to be able to keep those up. So, you know, I, I think we face that within our world, you know, we're SkyTrack does an amazing job of you know, a multi-year lift refurbishment, um, but still, you hit the point of a 50, 60-year-old lift, and you know, it just eventually hits the point of it's just not necessarily cost-effective or practical uh, to be refurbishing lifts at a certain age. So I think we're working with the industry right now, and what is that right here? Is it 30 years, is it 40 years, is it 50 years? Um, And at a certain point, you just physically can't get parts or the parts are just so expensive. So I think it's, you know, on the front end to to hit your question, SkyTrack does do a very good job with a multi-year refurbishment program. Um, And then it's, you know, working with resorts on, uh, you know, how do you stage that out? Because previously, you know, people would see how the year went. It's, you know, January, February, March, you know, we had a good year and we want to do two lifts this year. I think from both our perspective, supply chain perspective, and resort planning perspective, uh, you know, we look and you know, 23 is, you know, as busy, if not busier than 22, we're already starting to look at 24. And, you know, we have some resorts looking out to 25, uh, whether you're a small mom and pop, or, you know, you're a big conglomerate, it's looking at that multi-year, investment phase from a capex perspective. Uh, and, you know, how do you get creative, you know, you can spread those costs. You know, maybe you do concrete one year, and then we do the lift install the next year. So, I think if nothing else, the the demand and the supply chain issues have really, you know, brought us much closer together, working with the resorts themselves, their planning companies, and you know our supply chains. Um, you know, there's some fundamental things that we've done uh, to change how we operate and working with the resorts and the supply chain uh, to help us be much more effective and efficient moving forward.
1: Okay, quick break, then back to Darren and Leitner-Palma. All right, I wanna to talk to you about a service that I use every single day in the wintertime, open snow. I live within a five hour drive of approximately 150 ski areas. And what that means is I have a lot of options. So when I plan my ski days, I want to know what's firing. Is it the Lake Erie snow belt, plastering Western New York, Do I need to head up to the Tug Hill Plateau, are the Catskills high, or the resorts along the Green Mountain Spine in Vermont, or the Whites, or the Presidentials, or is a southern storm plastering Pennsylvania and Virginia? It's more than I can sort through myself, frankly, and that's why I use open snow. Outlooks from multiple weather forecasting models, hourly forecasts, mountain cams, and resort by resort snow forecasts. Yes, they are now a partner, but I have used OpenSnow for years, and now you can too. Test drive OpenSnow's best features with a free 60-day trial, including 10-day snow forecasts for your favorite ski resorts, high-resolution weather maps, expert analysis, and much more by visiting opensnow.com backslash stormskiing. That's opensnow.com backslash storm skiing. Well, you certainly have a lot of volume to adapt to going off of the new lift inventory on lift blog. Leitner Poma of America is installing 16 lifts this year. Skytrack, as I said, is installing another 10. These are some really impressive projects here, Darren. You have six high-speed six-packs going in at Alta A Basin, Blue Mountain, Pennsylvania, Palisades, Tahoe, Vale Mountain, and Whitefish. You have five more high-speed quads going in across the country, that big base-to-base gondola, which is actually two gondolas, I think, machine-wise at Palisades, Tahoe. So I do want to talk about the challenges, and 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 obviously those are out there, but I just have to ask, is, is this a record year for Leitner Palm of America? You, you mentioned five, six, seven projects when you first started at the company back in 2014, but by number of projects, is 2022 a record year for you?
0: yeah I, I think it's a record year for us i think it's a record year for the industry i i would say you you could double on the numbers you just ran through and that's the number of projects in the u.s so you know you go back to what i would call you know let's say pre-covid you know 20 25 lifts uh, for the entire industry in a year would have been a good year and you look at this year we're probably somewhere between 60 and 70 lifts for the entire industry uh so yeah it's you know we've been very fortunate um as i think you know the, the entire industry has been uh, this year so yeah it's a record year um you know very fortunate but you know with that record year comes it comes at you know probably one of the most challenging times uh you know in history from a manufacturing and a supply chain perspective so um but we we don't lose sight of that you know we're, we're very you know appreciative of the industry and where we're at and you know our number one goal that you know can be a challenge is we strive to hit our substantial completion dates by contract And supply chains have made that a very difficult uh, challenge this year. And and I think the other thing that's a little bit overlooked this year, yeah, supply chain issue has been a huge challenge. Um, But, you know, other unprecedented uh, items are permits. Uh, You know, we have projects this year that didn't get permits until, you know, September, October. Uh, You know, we had other permits that were delayed, um, you know, well into the summertime. So, you know, that's another reason we're seeing the market shift and people getting ahead and ordering lists, you know, maybe a year out. Uh, is to get ahead of that permit issue because we have such a narrow window. You know, generally we can get in there in May or June. Um, but, you know, if that's delayed by a month, then you start getting pushed into, you know, the back end uh, where you're dealing with snow. So, so it's, there, there's a lot of issues beyond supply chain that are starting to affect the industry as well. And things you've, you just never have seen in the past, you know, not getting a permit, not having projects approved is just something the, the industry has never truly seen in the past.
1: You have the supply chain issues, you have the permitting issues, you have labor issues. You have a lot of factors that you can control and, and some that you can't. I want to use an example that we've discussed on the record here, Darren, and that's the delay at Jackson Hole with the Thunderlift, which they're upgrading from a fixed grip quad to a high-speed quad. That is a mid-mountain lift, for those of you not familiar with Jackson Hole, runs it kind of at an angle to the tram, but, but up higher on the mountain. And the problem, as you described it to me, is, is that the haul rope is not there, but I'm, I'm sure that's just a piece of it. So so talk about the delays on Thunder and what caused them. And then and, and just how, does that, how is that case illustrative of the wider issues we're seeing around lift installation delays this year?
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's a very fair question. And, uh, you know, I,
1: there's been a number of key
0: items that have been a challenge this year. You know, haul ropes are by far one of those. Um, That really dives into the, you know, the upstream supply chain, especially coming out of Europe. Um, And that's been our specific issue with uh, Thunder at Jackson Hole, as well as, you know, a handful of other resorts. And, you know, it goes back to that supply chain. You know, you put those orders in, you have an original delivery date in August, uh, which gives you plenty of runway. And then just one link in that chain, whether it's uh, the manufacturing, delivery to port, um you know getting on ships uh ships being able to get to port um it just starts to cascade so you know a one month delay becomes a two month delay becomes a three month delay
1: um
0: so ropes haul ropes was a big issue this year switch gears were a big uh, issue this year uh anything within the electrical supply chain um has become a challenge this year um you know we get back into when a lot of these. Lists were ordered um, just during that time period the availability of steel uh, was a big issue uh, that we had to run through so it's just been a culminating effects that you know we go back a year ago 16 months ago in some of our projects for this year and we felt we were so far ahead of the curve and without uh, you know the covid without supply chain without uh, market interruptions uh, we would have been well ahead of the curve and so you know that's definitely the reality we're living into right now um but at the same time we have to deal with those realities and as i mentioned earlier you know the the partnerships we have with each and every resort out there i mean jackson hole is a perfect example um you know of working with their ops team of you know how we come together and you know how do you get the haul rope up on the mountain now that you have snow uh you know how do you deal with those challenges it's really really um uh, where the rubber meets the road, so to speak of, um, you know, the partnerships that we have with these resorts. Um, so, um, you know, I own all of the delays we have this year and, uh, you know, we work through those. Um, but at the flip time, we have to learn from those and we have to make fundamental operational procedural challenges of how we deal with those moving forward. So, um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, thunder is, you know, an unfortunate, but, a you know, a common example of just what we're faced with this year. Uh, you know the good news is the the rope did make it to port. It's been offloaded and you know in transit to, to the resort right now, and uh, you know working with their team to get it completed uh, as quickly as we can.
1: This haul rope situation kind of caught me off guard. And Alta, where you're also installing a high speed six pack, confirmed to me last night that they are also waiting on a haul rope from the peanut gallery. A haul rope seems like a fairly simple piece of the lift is that true is my first question is, is, am I missing some nuance? Is this more than a steel cable? And, and I realize it's wound together, but that's the first part of it is, is, and the second part is why don't we make these in America and, and can we?
0: Yeah. I think, you know, if, if you look at the, uh, the marketplace, there's, you know, a handful of manufacturers, um, you know, every resort is different. A lot of resorts have their preferences on who they will use, who they won't use. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's hysterical differences. And again, if you go back three or four years ago, it probably wasn't that big of a deal. Um, you know, they can be made here in the U.S. I S I don't think collectively us or the industry have found a manufacturer that fits the collective needs that we have. And, you know, to your point, it is a simple piece, but it is a fundamental piece. I mean, that is a piece that, you know, the whole entire system relies on. And, you know, a lot of people, you take a step back and you look and, you know, at any given time, you know, a standard lift in the U.S. is probably carrying as many people as, you know, a 737. So, it you know, it is a very, very critical piece of infrastructure and transportation. And, you know, from our perspective, safety is by far uh, number one. So it, it is a simple but a very critical piece. And, uh, you know, again, before the supply chain issues we had, you know, every rope we had ordered this year was scheduled to be here in August. And, you know, here we are. I think uh, the Alta rope was on the same boat as the... Um, Jackson Hole Rope and you know they're being delivered today and you know I got a whole comedy of errors of you know what caused these delays but you know at the end of the day I own those delays and um we have to adjust to those delays and again we're putting a lot of procedures in place uh, moving forward um that will you know help alleviate at least where we stand today I don't know what the the next round of these major issues are but uh, we're doing our best to adjust to the marketplace as it is today.
1: It seems to me, Darren, like the challenge is figuring out what to adjust for. You know, how do you tell apart which parts of these delays are kind of a feature of the current moment, right? Demand is up. uh, Supply chains have been a little wonky. COVID is still, depending on where you are, uh, a factor or not. So how, how do you sort this out? what are the, you know, between what are the short-term adjustments we have to make to make sure we're ready for next year? And what are the long-term adjustments that we have to make to to just change this whole system so that it has a little bit better ability to absorb future shocks and unexpected circumstances?
0: Yeah, I think to answer that question first, and what do we do? I think, you know, working with the industry, you know, with all of our partners, it kind of goes back to you know, how early people are placing orders. So, you know, if I look at where we stand today and the number of projects that we have on the books, you know, contracted and ready to go for 23, I mean, that's, you know, it's it's a a bigger number than we have for 22 and it's further ahead that we've ever been uh, in the process from that perspective. So I I think it's the industry and how they're um, handling it from their perspective, you know, getting through stuff through their CapEx processes earlier, uh, looking, you know, two, three years down the road, uh, planning out and working hand in hand with us and their planners of what that looks like. So I, I think that's number one. Uh, number two that I had mentioned is really looking at potentially these multi-year builds where we go in and do concrete one year, and then we come in and do, uh, you know, the steel erection the next year. Uh, from our perspective, uh, whenever we get a contract, we're, you know, ordering all the materials, uh, right then and there. Um, so, you know, it's, that started out getting ahead of the steel uh, supply chain. Um, And then every week we run a procurement report and, you know, things that used to be, you know, four, six, eight weeks are now, you know, 30, 40, 50 weeks. If you're looking for a major size gym set right now, uh, you're pushing 80 weeks. So it's, you know, understanding what those uh, timelines are and then working hand in hand with our partners. So, uh, you know, to your earlier point, whether it's a mom and pop or it's one of the corporate uh, guys, you know we're having conversations that are, you know, not only looking at you know where are we at this year, what are you looking at next year? As I say, we're looking at 23, 24, and 25. And then you know how do we better you know look at that supply chain? You know one day it's going to be haul ropes, you know then it's electrical components. Um, you know you go back a year ago and it was cargo uh, containers. Uh, we've also done a deep dive into our supply chain. And, you know, for instance, now we don't acquire anything out of China. So within the last two months, we've accepted our last orders uh, out of China uh, that we have direct dealings with. And we're resourcing those here in North America. Uh, So Mm -hmm. from our perspective, the fact that we manufacture the majority of everything here in North America, the shorter I can make that supply chain and I can source from here in the U.S., um, that helps us out from that perspective. Um, So it's... uh, You know, I think it's being much more in tune with the supply chain. You know, you go back three, four years ago, and the objective would be you order just enough to get into the factory when we have the capabilities in the factory to get into the field when they need it. You know, we've shifted everything that we order and manufacture just as quickly as we can. We've also made huge investments. You know, we brought in a new uh, director of manufacturing that comes from outside of our industry and, uh, you know, really has us tooled up, you know, In the past, you know, we would run day shifts, night shifts, you know, we're running day shifts, night shifts, weekend shifts, you know, being much, much more effective in terms of how we're utilizing, you know, our current facility and as we expand into our secondary facility. Um, And again, I I think from my perspective, the key still comes down to the partnership we have with our customers, you know, out there in the marketplace, uh, because we have to be working hand in hand, uh, you know, communicating to them uh, the challenges that we're facing. And, uh, you know, I, I can almost assure that if you're having an issue uh, with the lift and you're doing a snowmaking install or you're doing some, you know, building, uh, these same issues, you know, are out there. So, you know, I, as I say, we, we own the, the challenges that we're faced with. And the key in my perspective is how we handle those internally and how we handle those with our
1: partners. So it sounds like you're making a lot of adjustments. The supply chain is one thing. As you begin to reorder that and concentrate more things in North America. It seems like the biggest challenge that everyone is facing, and this is not particular to skiing or, or any part of the ski industry is labor. How do you typically source labor, Darren? So I'm thinking of a couple different ways that you operate, right? You have people who work in grand junction and I imagine those are hourly or salaried workers and they have a place to go work every day, but then you're going all over the country and putting in these lifts. And I imagine there's some mix of local contractors and, and crews do you work? So uh, how do you normally do that? What challenges have you faced and what adjustments are you making there to ensure that you're staffed up fully in the future? No, I think that's a great question. And, you know, I think it's affected, you know,
0: the entire world over the last couple of years. You know, one of the things we do from a corporate perspective is, is, you know, that consistency and stability. So for instance, when we had a shutdown for COVID, you know, we didn't lay anybody off. We kept everybody employed. So uh, you know, we try to p- provide right. that consistency, that stability, uh, you know, competitive wages in the marketplace um, and really trying to build careers. I and mean, one of the things we're doing, working with, uh, you know, local community colleges is really tackling, you know, those high school kids that are not going to go to a four year uh, traditional uh, path. But, you know, they can come out of high school, uh, do some uh, education, some Votech training and step into You know, a relatively good-paying job. You know, right out of high school. So we're really trying to invest in the future of our employee base, especially here at the factory. uh, Within that same parameter, providing continuing education for our existing employees. And then I I think the the big challenge that you really point out is that local labor force. I mean, you look at, you know, I think it was uh, last year and uh we were building the lift and you know i think we were up to 35 dollars an hour for labors and we just didn't get staffing so you know in that point we're starting to import labor so we'll bring people from other uh areas so it's really kind of a twofold where as much as we're developing our factory workers we're developing our installation and our service teams uh to get that depth and that experience and then trying to adjust to those uh you know local labor markets because the other thing you have in a lot of these resort communities is just, you know, the housing issues that all the resorts are dealing with right now. Uh, So in those instances, you know, as opposed to looking at condos or houses, you know, we might be bringing in temporary housing or RVs or that sort of stuff. So it's, it's really getting creative in terms of how we do that. But yeah, labor has been a huge, huge aspect. Uh, We've seen the labor market ease up a little bit. Uh, You know, the last two years uh, we had a lot of, uh, The same issues with the great uh, resignation, you know, people taking time off and chasing, you know, a lot of uh, temporary high paying jobs. And, you know, we're starting to see some of that. I think it's being called the boomerang effect that, you know, they've gone through, they have found themselves, they've, you know, had their current uh, position expire and now wanting to come back. So it's definitely something we're trying to get ahead of, but more so it's that labor development. So how do we train that next generation of employees that are coming in to work with us?
1: So I I do want to be careful, Darren, that we don't fall too much into the uh, failure narrative here. Because as I said, 26 lifts, that's really impressive. And most of them are almost done or or in a substantial number are on schedule. I I want to look in particular at SkyTrack. And I realize these are simpler machines. But all of those lifts, from what I can tell, and, and I may be wrong about this, but seem to be done or close to done. I know for a fact that the one at Bryce... Is done, and some other ones are are right on schedule with no fears that they won't be. Is it because these are simpler machines? Did Skytrack have a some secret weapon or some process in place, or is there something else going on here? W- w- where have you had successes, and, and why, in particular, is was Skytrack able to complete its lifts on time for the most part?
0: No, I, I think that's a good question, and, and I think you know on time at in some instances becomes a relative term. Uh, because we will make adjustments if we have, you know, delays on the front end. But, you know, I I think uh, to your point, uh, a fixed grip lift is definitely a much simpler uh, piece of equipment uh, than a detachable. You know, that was one of the beautiful things that SkyTrek has always had is they could almost do two rotations uh, from a manufacturing perspective within a given season. But I, I do think, you know, it's a it's a clean, it's a simplistic build. And then more so, it's a very clean and simplistic installation. And, and you bring up a good point. I mean, it, it's, I think we're a highly competitive uh, company. We're a highly competitive industry. And, you know, you miss those lines in the sand. And that's just hard, you know, to accept from a, an overall perspective. But there's a lot of reasons that go behind that. And I think the, uh, you know, the simplicity that we have within our fixed grip uh, components that are
1: out there uh, definitely helps us get ahead of that. All right. Before I let you go here today, Darren, I do want to just, if you have a few minutes, talk sure. about some of these really iconic lifts that you have going in this year. And, and I know that you're somewhat limited at times about what you can say about clients. So so tell us as much as you can. And I want to start with this Palisades Tahoe base-to-base gondola that I've mentioned a couple of times. Really transformative lift. Just tell us about this lift and how you've approached building it. And, and just from... From the perspective of Leitner-Poma, just how important is this project to your company and how proud are you to be a part of it?
0: No, I, I think for you know us as a company, for the industry, it, it is just an iconic lift. Uh, and it's been in the works. I mean, we were literally just talking about this last night. I think this lift has been in the discussion point for 10 or 12 years. So to see it come to fruition is just, you know, we couldn't be more proud you know, the partnership with, you know, Palisades Tahoe, Alpine, and Altera. Uh, and that has been a true partnership um, because you look at the the complexity of the machine, uh, the purpose of the machine, and then just the terrain in which we're building. Uh, it is just, you know, an engineering feat, um, you know, on, on a number of levels. But it, I, I think as your point, it as much as it is an access piece, it's, uh, it goes back to almost that urban transportation system we were talking about. You look at the number of buses that it's going to take off the road, uh, the public transportation aspect that it gives, it really lends that flair of what you were talking about, you know, how lifts are really utilized as transportation, um, you know, across the world. We're, we're seeing that right here, uh, in reality, uh, in the U S but, uh, it's, it's been a great project. It'll be good to see it, uh, Come to its conclusion this year, and uh, we couldn't be more proud of you know what we're delivering.
1: So you you mentioned earlier the difference between lift replacements and brand new lifts, and and you do have some brand new lifts coming in this year. You have Sundown Lift at Vale, which obviously there's a lot of lifts in the back bowls, but this was a new line. You have a new all new line at Whitefish with that great six pack that they're building at Montana Snow Bowl. You have an all new line. Just talk a little bit about the challenges of building an all new lift versus building a replacement.
0: I would say it's kind of a balance because as many of the challenges you may have, you know, you're also working, you know, from a, a clean slate. So I think it's 50-50. I, I think from our perspective, the I'd say the fun aspect of that is you're working hand in hand with the resort, their developer. And, you know, for instance, you might be bringing new terrain on and, you know, what's the best way and what's the best technology for this new terrain coming on and how do we adapt our technology Portfolio to that specific. So, you know, I think on the front end, the challenges you may have is getting in and, uh, you know, clearing the lift lines, getting the profile approvals done, uh, as opposed to, you know, you're taking out an old lift and you're putting in a new lift. So, as many of the challenges you may have, I, I think there's some other, you know, benefits and aspects that, uh, you know, you may not have to deal specifically with an existing lift line. You can cater that new lift uh, to the specific terrain or the specific needs uh, that the customer has. So, but I, I think we're, you know, definitely seeing the replacement aspect is really probably what's driving a lot of the bulk that we're having now. Uh, but you are seeing, you know, still quite a few new lifts coming on board, uh, you know, whether it's the ones uh, you mentioned, or, you know, I think next year, you'll probably see a little bit more of a split of uh, new lifts and replacement lifts, but they, they both have, you know, their, I don't want to say positives and negatives, but they, they both have their aspects that
1: are very interesting and very fun. It's interesting that you mentioned catering to the client's need. The ski areas don't always do what we as skiers would expect them to do. And I was chuckling a little bit when I was looking over the inventory of what you have going in this year, where you have Bittersweet Michigan building a 319 vertical foot detachable quad. And I'm from Michigan, so I, I've always I've always laughed a little bit at the uh, the detachables there. And then at Montana Snowbowl, you have this 1700 vertical foot triple it's a skytrack fixed grip triple going in and you know you would expect a, a, a lift of that length to be a detachable lift. So w- when it when it comes to working with your clients, how do you work with them to come up with the right machine for the circumstances and and it, you know, how do you end up sometimes with with something that is just completely unexpected?
0: Yeah, I, I think that
1: this is where it kind of gets into the the
0: fun aspect and the partnership because really to me it's kind of a, a trifecta. So you've got the resort most times you have the resort planner, and then you have us. And so it's, you know, what's the customer needs? How do you analyze what this lift is going to do? Because I think what's interesting is you look at a lot of the replacement lifts that are out there. And if you're replacing, say, a, you know, 30, 40-year-old uh, fixed grip double lift with a new high-speed detachable, how does that change the aspect of the mountain? And what I mean by that is, you know, What are your lift lines to start the day how do you get people up the mountain what are you where are you putting the people on the mountain how do they flow through the mountain how do you adjust the speed of that lift based on the time of the day so there's a lot of key elements that go in that you know in the past you would put your lift in they would give you your aspect a lot of times if you're replacing a much higher speed or higher capacity lift over an old one it really changes the dynamics of a mountain uh, or a lot of resorts will have a, you know, a five-year master plan, a ten-year master plan. You start putting in new technology and how it moves people across the resort. I think you're seeing resorts really take a look at that and understand how are we managing lift lines. Because you look at COVID and the, the amount of volume that resorts were seeing and how do you move people through the resort, whether it's you know, the parking lot, uh, accessing the mountain, going through the lift lines, your base area facilities. I think resorts are really starting to take a deep dive from a customer service perspective, and we try and lend our expertise from our uh, experience and our technology to how we can help with that on-mountain flow. So I think it's becoming much more of, I don't want to say an art form, but I think we're collectively spending a lot more time on what is the impact of the technology that we're bringing out. Um, as well as uh, the flow that that provides on the mountain. And, and it's interesting. You talked earlier about, you know, the eight places and, you know, across the globe, those had a big push a, a while ago. And, you know, even though we're seeing the first few here in North America, I think people are pulling back on those. And, you know, we're seeing a lot more quads than, you know, historically we were doing uh, the six places. So I, I think it's becoming, you know, very personalized and very specific to the application versus a one-size-fits-all Uh, Aspect because you know even though we may have a standard quad lift to some extent every lift is unique and specific to that application whether it's the the vertical the rise the capacity Uh, you know to a certain extent every lift is customized.
1: It's it's a really interesting puzzle and it's always fascinating to look at what's on the menu for the next year. Last question for you here today, Darren. Let's just look ahead to 2023. And you've brought this up a few times, and Lift Blog already has. 11 projects scheduled for Leitner Poem of America next year, and three for SkyTrack, including, as you mentioned, more high-speed quads, seven, then high-speed six-packs, four. I'm sure that those numbers will all change. And then uh, three SkyTrack fixed-grip quads. Just looking ahead to 23, uh, how how are you feeling about the slate coming up? and, And how confident are you that you will be able to do this better next year than you did this year?
0: No, and it's a great question. I, I, you know, without getting into specifics, I can say we'll be as busier or busier than we were this year. Um, I think, uh, you know, in terms of how we handle it is we've got, uh, you know, a lot more contracts earlier. Uh, We've probably got 80% of the materials for those contracted lifts ordered. And, uh, you know, we're already spinning uh, equipment through the facility. So, you know, I think that compared with, you know, definitely working the supply chain issues, you know, we internally have two meetings a week, uh, looking at supply chain, where we are, uh, what are the timelines, where are the delays, and then we're also looking for some alternatives. As I mentioned, you know, we brought all of the materials we were acquiring from China here to the US. Uh, We're also backing that up with multiple suppliers. Uh, So really, you know, looking at where we can protect ourselves and, you know, you can never predict that next thing. You know, I think we were moving along earlier in the year, you know, steel prices are coming down and then Ukraine war happens and then steel prices go through the roof and the availability of steel. So, you know, I, I think the benefit of having a global company, we do get a little bit of uh, insight on other geopolitical things we should be keeping an eye on. Uh, but at the same time, you know, what can we do to boost ourselves here in the US? So no, I, I think we're cautiously optimistic going into 23. You know, as we learned this year, we can never Uh, Be, you know, 100% confident we're not going to run into challenges, but we're doing everything we can to learn from the challenges we had this year, Uh, you know, work with our resort partners and, uh, you know, put that full transparency and timelines out there ahead of time so that we can all be working on it together should we be faced with these next round of challenges.
1: All right, Darren, it sounds like you have a plan and you have a lot of motivation and I I really appreciate the transparency today. And and I think everyone listening will as well. It's it's hard to watch the lifts just sitting there and not know what's going on. So it, it really helps to get your insight and I really appreciate it. So really wishing you best of luck finishing up all these projects. Hope everything gets to where it's supposed to go very soon. And I wish you really good luck in 2023 as well and in the future. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Stuart. I truly appreciate the opportunity and uh, look forward to following up with you on next year's projects.
1: That's Darren Cole, president of Leitner Poma of America. That was really good, I thought. You have to respect a guy who steps up and says, yeah, this is all my fault and here's how I'm going to fix it. Skiing needs more of that. Less blaming, everything else, and more talking about how you're going to address the problem. I have a lot of respect for how Darren stepped up there and owned all that. I really appreciate that candor and that attitude. So thank you very much for that, Darren. I hope you all enjoyed that as well. Thank you very much for listening. Digging out of my editing hole here, I've got Vail Mountain Chief Operating Officer Beth Howard up next. She has lived in the Vail Valley since the 1980s, and she has some real insight into the challenges that area is facing. Then I had a great podcast conversation with Open Snow CEO Joel Gratz last week. And I also did a live podcast with JP General Manager Steve Wright at the Snowbound Expo in Boston. Also brought ski columnist Sean Suttner back on the pod for our annual chat. All of those are coming your way very soon via stormskiing.com. You will want to sign up for the email newsletter to make sure you get those the second they're live. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon.
0: The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.